This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. Gay people occupied positions of power in Washington, D.C. long before they could be honest about who they were and who they loved. Homosexuality was, by and large, a secret. And my guest today is a journalist with a fascinating book about the keeping and spilling of those secrets through the 20th century. James Kerchick is the author of Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. Jamie's also a columnist at Tablet, and he's a fellow at the Atlantic Council. His new book is about how long-standing anti-gay attitudes in the United States collided with the rise of the security state in World War II and the Cold War. These forces transformed gays into a perceived national security threat, even as they grew more socially visible, especially in the post-Stonewall era. The book is also about how the AIDS crisis forced prominent gay Washingtonians out into the open, sometimes in death, and helped contribute to the end of the closet as we had known it in the Cold War era. Jamie, thank you for being here today. It's a really fascinating and wide-ranging book. Thank you for having me. What is the role that the Cold War plays in creating the manner in which people are are forced to hide this aspect of themselves through so much of 20th century American history? Sure. Well, if you look at opposition to homosexuality in Western civilization or in the United States, it derives mainly from religion, right? From the Judeo-Christian Bible and, and that tradition uh, where it's condemned. And gay people were obviously criminalized. Homosexual acts were against the law. And it was considered a mental illness. But with the rise of the national security state, and I would, I would, I would date the closet a little earlier, I'd say really to World War II, when, when the United States enters the global uh, stage, really. Suddenly, it progresses from a sin into being a national security threat, because the belief is that because this is the most shameful, uh, disgusting, repulsive thing you could possibly be, that you would therefore be more susceptible to blackmail, but to, to blandishments from foreign governments. And so the first you know, chapters of the book detail uh, the very first sort of gay political scandal in American history, which is Sumner Wells, who was the undersecretary of state for Franklin Roosevelt and a very influential diplomat. I mean, he, he wrote the Atlantic Charter and he was a very successful and, uh, and important diplomat. And he, he was gay and his enemies within the Roosevelt administration who disliked him partly for ideological reasons, mostly just because of rivalries, because they were all competing basically for FDR's attention. Um, they were able to use this against him. And the arguments that they were using were, this is now a threat to the country because this man who holds all these secrets, these national security secrets can be, can be blackmailed by our, by our enemies. And this is in 1941 when this scandal starts. And then in 1942, we have the very first outing in American politics. That word was not used really until the early 90s. But it was of uh, Senator David Walsh of Massachusetts, who uh, was an isolationist Democrat. He was accused of frequenting a brothel, a male brothel in Brooklyn, uh, near the Navy Yard, where the Navy Yard used to be, that was frequented by Nazi spies. And the New York Post, which at the time, it might be hard for readers to imagine this, the New York Post which at the time was the paper of basically the intellectual left-wing elite um, <laughs> in, New York, in New York City, very strongly allied to FDR. They outed him, and it was allies of FDR who outed him. And again, they did this on the on the pretext that this poses a threat, that here he is, he could be blackmailed, he's, he's in the company of these, these Nazi spies who are infiltrating this male brothel. Um, and, then it, and then certainly once the Cold War begins and we have the rise of the national security state, 
then it becomes really solidified, this notion of the closet. And the reason that is useful as a pretext that there's, is that there's an element of truth to that, right? Yeah, I mean, yes, in the sense that was homosexuality um, uh, a vulnerability? Absolutely, of course it was. Just as, by the way, having an affair or being a drunk or having gambling debts, all the other sorts of problems that one could have. The answer to this, of course, is that if you don't penalize homosexuality, or if you actually allow your government worker or your spy or your undersecretary of state uh, to come to you and to be open about this part of his life, then therefore the pretext for the blackmailer disappears. And so in a sense, it was sort of a catch-22, right? Because the US government has sort of created this category of person, the homosexual, um, which created all sorts of opportunities for our adversaries. You know, interestingly enough, there was not a single case in the history of the, of the United States of a gay person being blackmailed because of their sexual orientation. Huh. Uh, there was a there was a study done in at the end of the Cold War, sometime in the early 1990s, I believe. It was a, it was a Rand study or a Defense Department commissioned a study, and they studied you know over a hundred cases of people who had committed treasonable offenses, um, and there were a handful of gay people, but none of them had done it because they were gay. And one of the stories I tell, there's a sort of there's sort of an origin story for this myth of the kind of traitorous homosexual. It goes all the way back to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. There was a colonel uh, who was actually the head of their counterintelligence bureau, uh, Alfred Radel, who was spying for the Russians. And he happened to be gay. And after he was caught, they gave him a pistol to commit suicide. This is how things were done in you know pre-World War I in Vienna. Um, after he committed suicide, the Austro-Hungarian authorities sort of put out the story that he was gay and he'd been blackmailed into spying for the Russians. Turns out that the Russians didn't even know he was gay. He was doing it like many, if not most spies throughout history. He was doing it for the money. You know, he had multiple houses. He had a very expensive taste in wine. Um, <laughs> but, it, but it was very embarrassing to the Austro-Hungarian military that their head of their own counterintelligence, right, the guy whose job it is is to detect foreign spies. He himself was one. And so they kind of put out this story and it becomes this sort of legendary, I mean, if, if you read on the, the, the history of intelligence and you read these books from the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, and even in, in congressional testimony, when they were trying to justify the policy of excluding gay people, they, the, the only real evidence or example that they had was the case of Colonel Radel. Hmm. Um, you know, Al, uh, Alan Dulles, who was the first civilian director of the CIA, he wrote multiple books about espionage, and he would continually come back to this. Hmm. Um, and it turned out it wasn't true. So yeah, certainly, I don't want to... Um, well, I, I think as a, as a historian writing about history, you need to understand the context in which you're writing. Right. So it was not a completely irrational belief to... I mean, well, the fear of homosexuality, now we can look at as being irrational. Mm -hmm. But at the time, you have to understand the context. Obviously, the vast majority of people are were what we, by today's standards would consider homophobic, right? There was, it's not like liberals or progressives were any better on this issue than conservatives. I mean, you know, you look across the spectrum, the progressive attitude on homosexuality in 1950 was, well, they're sick. You know, they might not be evil, but they're sick, right? So there was the societal consensus, obviously, that homosexuality was this terrible, taboo subject. And so certainly, yes, you can understand where this policy derived from. Although that said, and I discussed some of these people in the book, there were a handful of people um, you know, Max Lerner, who was actually a journalist for, oddly enough, the New York Post in the early 1950s, he did a whole series, a fascinating series on the 
sort of obsession with homosexuals in the in the State Department and the CIA. And he would just sort of ask questions. You know, he he would say, "Well, is there any evidence of of a, of a homosexual, you know, selling secrets?" And he could not get anyone to actually come out with the evidence. There was all this hysteria, and there are all these sorts of stories about. Well, the Nazis had a list of homosexuals of all over the world. There were five thousand people on this list, and then after the war, the Soviets got this list. And so Joseph Stalin, he has a personal list of every known homosexual in the State <laughs> Department. I mean, these were like serious. You know, these were congressmen and senators were, you know, saying this in debate, and this was actually something that was believed. Um, so there were a handful of people who would sort of point out the kind of absurdities or the, or the lack of evidence for these claims, but they were very few and far between. This was a bipartisan policy. And it wasn't until 1995 that Bill Clinton lifted the ban on gay people receiving security clearances. I mean, this was a relatively recent development. One thing that I'm interested in is how this was for you doing the research for this book. And that, you know, as you described, you you have all of these rumors, you have accusations of homosexuality being used for various political purposes. Of course, people were not open about these things at the time. I assume the historical record is sometimes difficult to establish whether some of these claims about various individuals being gay were true or not. How, how was that for you as you reported this? Well, when I tell people I was writing this book, I've been working on this book for 10 years on and off. And whenever I would say I'm working on a book about gay Washington, really, the, you can imagine the first thing people would say is, oh, well, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, and he wore dresses, right? <laughs> and that it's amazing the extent to which that sort of urban legend, that's what I'm going to call it, has, has kind of taken root. And also the fact that, or, or the belief that he was gay. So J. Edgar Hoover was not gay? Well, there's no evidence for it, okay? Like, in, in terms of the evidence that you or I, as journalists, would require, right? So- were there, were there love letters exchanged, right? Was there evidence of him having some kind of sexual relationship with a man? There's no evidence of that. If you're asking me, do I believe was he gay? I think he was probably celibate, frankly. And, mm. you know, in, in his heart of hearts, who knows? But there are rumors about him being gay, by the way, that go back to, and I write about them in the book. I mean, he was being written about very early into his tenure at the head of the FBI. They would use all these sorts of euphemisms um, that he had a mincing walk. <laughs> or that he, or that he, or that he wore a um, a handkerchief that matched the color of his tie, which was a sort of a way that gay men would sometimes signal to each other that they were gay hmm. in the nineteen twenties and thirties. The notion, this story that he had that he was a crossdresser, which was most sort of famously depicted in the movie J. Edgar, the Clint Eastwood movie, that comes from a sensational biography that was written about J. Edgar Hoover in nineteen ninety three by a British journalist. So you should immediately take. You, know, you should immediately be immediately be susceptible that a, that a British journalist wrote this, right? And he actually he paid the widow of a mobster, whom Hoover had been you know investigating or maybe had some kind of you know corrupt relationship with. He paid this woman, who then told him these stories about her personally witnessing J. Edgar Hoover involved in orgies at the Park Plaza Hotel with Roy Cohn. <laughs> dressed, you know, wearing a dress and, you know, predating on young boys. This is where this this whole notion that J. Edgar Hoover was a crossdresser, that's where it comes from. And like, to me, you know, as someone who's trying to write a serious history of this subject, that just doesn't cut it. You know what I mean? So that's just one, that's probably the most famous example, right? Um, but yes, I mean, certainly when you're writing a book like this and you're and you're doing an investigation into history on a subject that was the most taboo Subject. I mean, you have to understand that being gay 
even during the Cold War, it was the worst thing you could possibly be. It was worse than being a communist because a communist could become an ex-communist. And we had very famous cases. I mean, probably one of the most, and I, and I read about him in the book, one of the most important figures in the history of the American conservative movement, Whitaker Chambers, you know, was an ex-communist. He was also maybe an ex-gay or gay, however you, you know, however you <laughs> d- uh, define that. And that's sort of an interesting kind of, that's really one of the earliest um, examples of this sort of intertwining of communism and homosexuality was in the case of Whitaker Chambers. But he was able to come out not as a homosexual. He was able to come out as an ex-communist and then be accepted. And we have many cases of this. Uh, a gay person was forever condemned. I mean, there was no coming back. You know, there's, there, this, this was before the notion of ex-gays really had, you know, took on. So to be gay was the worst possible thing. And so the way, you, you know, it often wouldn't, it often wouldn't even be said. The word wouldn't be said. I mean, the, the outing of David Walsh that I mentioned earlier, the word homosexual never appears in the New York Post series about him. And even in the debate, there was a debate on the floor of the, of the Senate because they, all these senators were up in arms, angry that he would be attacked. And, and they wouldn't even use the word homosexuality. They would refer to it as a, a crime not to be mentioned or, <laughs> an, or uh, yeah, or an, an abomination that, that, that cannot be named. Contradiction I find remarkable about this is, I mean, you know, it's it's the worst thing you can be, and it destroys all of these careers, all of these accusations. And yet you also have these figures who are reputed to be gay for decades, and it doesn't destroy them. And, I, you know, you described that in J. Edgar Hoover's case that there, there's no evidence that the, those rumors were true. Roy Cohn was was very definitely gay. And you describe in the book, not just in the press, but in congressional hearings in the 1950s, people making these insinuations that Roy Cohn is gay. And that did not stop his career that went on for three decades subsequent to that. So how did that, how was it that some people could be widely understood to be gay, people who had a lot of political enemies who wanted to make hay about that, and it didn't take them down while it did take other people down? It's a good question. Um, you know, with Cohn, I think it's certainly in the 50s, he was extremely careful, right? And so there was no one was able to produce actual evidence that he was well, gay. But you describe him like sort of flitting around Europe with his apparent with boyfriend Shine, in, front, in right. front of the whole press, like, you right. know, like sort of like flirty, like sightseeing in Munich, bopping well, that's each other how they on were, the That's how they were written about. I mean, David Shine yeah. probably was not gay. I think Roy Cohn had a crush on him. This was huh. the counsel on the Army McCarthy just to give your listeners some context, the downfall of Joe McCarthy really began with Roy Cohn trying to protect, Roy Cohn was the chief counsel. They were trying to protect um, this man, David Shine, who was this handsome, so he was described as a Greek god, <laughs> who Roy Cohn wanted to get on the staff of Joe McCarthy's committee investigating communists in the army. And they wanted to get him basically special treatment. Well, and prior to that, they'd hired him into this job on the committee for which he was not really apparently totally qualified. Totally not qualified. And, th- and then he's supposed to be drafted. And then yeah. He was to be drafted. But then Roy Cohn basically – so Roy Cohn wanted to keep him on the committee because he didn't want his, his love interest to be drafted <laughs> in, in, into the military. And he caused so much trouble harassing the military and conscripting Joe McCarthy into causing all these problems for the military, basically calling up all these generals and just nonstop threats that this became a huge inter, uh, national and almost international story. And it led to what we refer to as the Army McCarthy hearings, which um, there's a very famous clip that we've all seen. It's been quoted many, many times during the Trump era of the lawyer for the Army, Joseph Welch, 
saying to Joe McCarthy, have you no decency, sir? That line comes from the Army McCarthy hearings. And that's basically the end of Joe McCarthy. Joe McCarthy went too far um, by accusing the army of all institutions, right, of basically being infested with communists. He went too far, but he was basically dragged into this whole mess because his aide, his chief counsel, Roy Cohn, who at the time was a 26-year-old wonder kid, was basically, you know, obsessing uh, over the fact that his wannabe boyfriend, that, like I said, I don't think there's any evidence, and I don't think that they had a sexual relationship. I think it was an unrequited love that he had for David Schein. But he's basically so obsessed with keeping him from going into the military that he brought down Joe McCarthy with him. <laughs> and so you can almost think of, you know, you can think of, you can think of McCarthyism, the phenomenon itself. It's basically birthed and dies through these two kind of homosexual dramas. Basically, the Alger Hiss Whitaker Chambers case which is the first sort of post-war communist spy drama in America. It's Alger Hiss, who is, you know, this former high-ranking State Department official, the president of the Carnegie Foundation, um, is revealed to have been a Soviet spy by Whitaker Chambers. And there's this, because as, as I mentioned earlier, Chambers had a gay past. There were all these sorts of insinuations that there was a gay relationship between the two men, that maybe Chambers was a spurned lover and that he was accusing Hiss of being a communist because he was rejected by Hiss. And that basically leads to McCarthyism, is the, the exposure of Alger Hiss, this very high-ranking State Department official. Who was correctly accused. Who was who was correctly accused. I mean, this, this was confirmed after the Cold War when the archives opened up. So there's this kind of homosexual drama that basically leads to and gives force to McCarthy, because then McCarthy can say, ah, well, they lied to, you know, all the hoity-toity, egg-headed liberals at the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Truman administration, you know, they lied to you about Alger Hiss. Well, how many more communists are there, right? So that basically, you know, lays out the path for McCarthyism, which then goes on for, you know, 1950s when he gives his famous wheeling speech where he raises the list. I have a list of 205 communists. By the way, three weeks after that speech, it is revealed that the State Department um, had fired 91 gay people, homosexuals, hmm. as they referred to them at the time. So you have this sort of intertwining, right, of McCarthyism, the Red Scare, which we all know about, with a Lavender Scare, which we don't know much about, but was as destructive or more, just in terms of the number of people who were, lost their jobs. And then that goes on for basically four years, and then McCarthyism comes crashing down in another drama, the Army McCarthy hearings, that's kind of a gay, you know, it's like a gay soap opera. Why did Joe McCarthy allow himself to be dragged into that by Roy Cohn? I mean, you, you describe at the time these, these insinuations that it was because Joe McCarthy was gay. So that's what people wrote about. And certainly, uh, if you read Between the Lines uh, and you were reading the newspaper closely, you, and, and you were reading, in particular, journalists like Drew Pearson uh, or Joe Alsop, who interestingly himself was a closeted homosexual, they would write about these three men as being part of a homosexual love triangle. And in fact, the first real kind of Republican to attack Joe McCarthy by name, Ralph Flanders of Vermont, gave a speech on the floor of the Senate where he basically implied that there was a homosexual love triangle going on. He didn't say it explicitly. And in fact, he was interviewed about this speech 20 years later. And still then, he would not say the word. He's like, he basically said, well, people knew what I was talking about. We knew there was something going on. <laughs> But he gives, he gives a speech on the floor of the Senate where he referred to McCarthy as Dennis the Menace. And he says, what is going on here between the senator, the chief counsel, uh, and their aide? You know, who's, who's controlling who? 
And, you know, I think most people in the hinterlands didn't really understand what was going on. But if you were sort of a Washington insider and you were, you know, at the dinner tables and the bars at night, then this was definitely something being talked about. And as, as uh, Lillian Hellman, the famous communist playwright, referred to them as Bonnie, Bonnie and Clyde. Um, <laughs> was how, but, but again, she didn't, she didn't come up with that line until you know her memoir about the time, uh, Scoundrel Time, which was published, I think, in 1975. So again, this was all done kind of sub rosa. Um, and someone like, you know, Cohn was very skilled at this because he was he was good at kind of exercising power. Uh, and he destroyed people. I mean, in the middle of all this, he destroyed a man who was gay. He basically got McCarthy to, you know, uh, dig up old accusations of that a State Department official had a had a gay incident when he was at Harvard. Um, and this was basically used, you know, quietly behind the scenes to to destroy him. And that's just one case that we know about. We, we can be sure that Cohn was involved in others. But I think he was just very careful. And, you know, it wasn't until really the 80s, or the 70s and the 80s, when he started hanging out at, you know, Studio 54. But even then, you know, the media was largely protective of him and the straight media, you know. And so outing as a phenomenon, you know, I, I mentioned this case in 1942. It's hard to point to any other case, um, really, until the 1980s, because the media would not write about homosexuality and politics unless a politician got himself into trouble, right? And like they crossed the law, and then there was a police report, and it had to be reported mm -hmm. on, right? So you have the right. you have the case of Walter Jenkins, who was LBJ's most famous, most senior aide, who you know three weeks before the 1964 presidential election. He's caught by the police, you know, engaged in sex in the men's room at the YMCA around the corner from the White House. And so once that, once the police get involved, it gets leaked. And then the Republican National Committee, you know, they're the ones who put out a statement. And then the, and then it, what's, what's funny is that there's this, I, I think it's a great scene in the book where LBJ's, you know, two top uh, consigliaries, basically, Abe Fortas, who is this short um, lawyer. And then Clark Clifford, who was a Democratic bigwig fixer going back to the Truman administration, was this tall guy. And the two of them, when they got the news that Jenkins had been arrested, they went from uh, the office of the Washington Post to the office of the Washington Daily News, which was a daily tabloid <laughs> paper. And then they went to the office of the Washington Evening Star. They met with the editors. They sat down. They had a gentleman's discussion. And this is kind of the way... Washington used to work, right? It was that you could have the, you know, chief uh, lawyer to the president could just, you know, walk into the office <laughs> with his with his fellow his fellow Yale or Harvard grad probably, right? And over cigars, they could kind of we'll have a gentleman's agreement. We're not going to we're not going to write about poor Walter. He's sick, right? And they were able to do that for a couple of hours until the Republican National Committee basically blurted it out. And then there's no avoiding it. But the media really did. I mean, they're very cagey about this issue and they didn't um, write about public figures and homosexuality um, unless there was some sort of scandal that made it unavoidable. Or AIDS, right? And then AIDS kind of pushes all these people out of the closet. Right. So b before we get to AIDS and, and the 1980s, there's an episode in, I get, well, I guess it goes into 1980, but starting in the 1970s, um, that you know we, we've talked about sort of the strategic use of these accusations of homosexuality, but there's also a fever swamp element to some of these ideas where it sort of seems like some of these claims take on a life of their own mm. beyond. And, and I'm talking specifically about this idea that Ronald Reagan was controlled by like a secret cabal of gays, um, perhaps including 
then Congressman Jack Kemp, who mm. I, Jack Kemp was not gay, right? No, no. Yeah. But people thought he was gay. Some people thought he was gay. And so where, where does this idea come from that Ronald Reagan would have been controlled by some cabal of homosexuals and, and notably used to a significant extent this claim used by moderate Republicans trying yes. to stop the conservative Reagan takeover of the party? It is funny, isn't it? Because we think of now in, in, in the contemporary era of gay rights being a progressive left-wing issue. But I think one of the things you learn reading this book is that it really was not a left or a right. I mean, it was just basically everyone would use the the accusation of homosexuality as, as a weapon against everyone else. It was basically the kind of nuclear weapon of political weaponry. So again, with Reagan, there's sort of a degree of truth to it, which is, or not truth, well, I'll leave your your listeners to decide. I mean, Ronald <laughs> Reagan came from Hollywood, right? And Hollywood had a lot of creative people in it. There were a lot of gay people, a disproportionate number of gay people who are involved in, in and, and to this day, I would say, are involved in the creative industries, right? And Hollywood, even for its time, when Ronald Reagan was getting his start in the 30s and 40s and 50s, Hollywood was a relatively more open place than pretty much anywhere else in the country. Maybe the theater, I don't know. Maybe Maybe Broadway would have been better but certainly more open than Washington DC. And there's a there's a an anecdote that Ronald Reagan recounts in his mem his first memoir which is impossible to find today. When he was running for governor, he published a memoir in 1965 and he talks about one of the first movies he was in called Dark Victory with Betty Davis and he's playing basically he's playing the role of her gay best friend. Or as he described it and he was very uncomfortable playing this role because the 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 director was a bisexual Englishman named Edmund Goulding. And, and the way Reagan described the direction he received was that Goulding wanted him to play this role as if he were the sort of fellow who could sit in the women's dressing room and dish with them while they got dressed. That's how Reagan, <laughs> that's how Reagan described it, which is basically a gay man, right? Who else can sit right. in the women's dressing room and, and dish with them while they're taking off their shirts and blouses, right? And how uncomfortable he was playing this role. Um, and so even as an actor, right, he was made uncomfortable by this. And then in 1967, there actually is a gay scandal when he's governor. Um, not with him, but several of his aides are accused of participating in a gay orgy at a timeshare in Lake Tahoe. Uh, and this is exposed by Drew Pearson, who is this kind of muckraking you know, journalist with the fedora, right? He exposed, <laughs> he, he writes about this. And he says that there was, and he sort of, he doesn't name any of the men involved, but he does refer to one of them as being an athlete, a man working as the governor's athletic advisor. And Jack <laughs> Kemp, who was, so Jack Kemp, who was a professional football player at the time, was working as an intern because he had this sort of policy wonk interest, right? And so he was working, he spent the off season working in Reagan's gubernatorial office. And so it didn't take many people much difficulty to figure out that Kemp was allegedly involved in this. There was no evidence for this. It's still unclear whether or not it, two men were forced to resign. It's unclear to the extent whether or not they were even gay to this day, right? But that became a huge, that was basically Reagan's first political test was the exposure of this gay ring uh, in his gubernatorial office. Um, and so you have these sorts of elements, right? You have that, well, he's an actor, He's from California, which is kind of a, you know, <laughs> there's that saying, right? That California, it's like a bowl of cereal. It's fruits, nuts, and flakes, right? So there's that kind of, <laughs> there's that kind of California vibe that he's got going on. 
Um, and then there is this real life political gay scandal that in, in, in that that was a real serious issue that he got really criticized for his handling of it. And then um, in 1980, you know, I came across this story that's never been reported before, uh, which was this group of really kind of ideologically disparate Republicans stretching from, you know, Barry Goldwater on the right, you could say, to Pete McCloskey on the left, who ran against Richard Nixon as a liberal anti-Vietnam War Republican. Dick Cheney was tangentially involved in this story, which you can read about. The excerpt is in Politico magazine. They basically bring this kind of dossier of allegations uh, to Ben Bradley uh, of the Washington Post. And Bradley takes it seriously, and he assigns his best reporters, including Bob Woodward, to investigate this concern that Ronald Reagan is a Manchurian candidate um, <laughs> of this sort of right-wing gay cabal. It's kind of a convoluted story. You can, you can read it in the book or you can read it in the excerpt about how the kind of notion of a right-wing um, aspect to this was formed. But they basically tried to use this to derail his nomination. Uh, and it was investigated, like I said, and they did uncover, the Post did uncover the presence of some gay men around Ronald Reagan, but they didn't find, you know, anything kind of nefarious. There was not evidence of uh, that these gay men were somehow working in concert to, you know, affect um, a policy change. And basically Bradley came to the decision that, well, none of these men are going to get jobs that require a security clearance. And so therefore it's not newsworthy, which is the right call. Um, we can kind of chuckle at how kind of crazy it seems. But I think it's important, again, to get back into that mindset that this is how people viewed this issue, right, in 1980, that someone, you know, as legendary a newsman as Ben Bradley um, would would have taken these concerns seriously and assigned some of his best reporters to investigate it. And also, there's another part of this story, which I'm trying to, but the Reagans themselves were just surrounded by gay men beyond just the advisors. Um, you had Nancy in particular is sort of this kind of, you know, diva figure, um, <laughs> sort of a kind of Cruella de Vil almost, really, when you look at the way that she behaved during the AIDS crisis, right? But I actually have a page in the book in the photo insert it's called all the all the first ladies men, and it's just photos of Nancy and all of her gay courtiers, huh. her de her decorator, her hairstylist, her best, <laughs> you know, the men that you know, Merv Griffin and and uh, Bob Gray, who was this power lobbyist, you know, the the people that she would gossip with on on the phone, Jerry Zipkin, who was this Walker. I mean, she was really surrounded by all these gay people. So the Reagans just have this, you know, Ronald and Nancy. There's kind of just this sort of homosexual aura surrounding them. It's, it has to do with, I think, with the glamour, the kind of the artifice, right? It, it's just a sort of kind of gay aspect of them and their presidency and their administration. And I think kind of it continues to fascinate people to this day. And so... As we get into the Reagan administration and the 80s, you know, I mean, to the extent that, you know, the, the creation of the security state, World War II, the Cold War, that creates the modern closet as we as we knew it in the 20th century. Then you end up with the AIDS crisis forcing a lot of people out of the closet, in some cases in death. Yeah. Um, and sort of in a in a surprising way ends up leading to a significant normalization of gay life in Washington, D.C. and in politics. Well, it's like, I think because it shows that, you know, AIDS was the great leveler. And it struck 
gay people, gay men from all different walks of life. Uh, it struck poor black gay people. It struck wealthy white Republican conservative gay people. It did not uh, discriminate in that sense. Um, and I and I read about a handful of you know some of the more high profile conservative ones who were basically outed by contracting the disease. Stuart McKinney, who was a liberal Republican congressman from from Connecticut, he was the first and I think the only uh, congressman to die of AIDS. He had wanted it to be known that he had died of AIDS. He sort of he told his doctor to let that be known, but he didn't release any sort of statement or public acknowledgement of his gay life. He was married with children, um, and I think he wanted to protect his family. In fact, they they claimed he'd gotten HIV from a blood transfusion. So right? that was what the doctor had claimed at first, and then the story came out that he was having gay sex. And, and the Washington Post reported that story, and the New York Times reported it. And they justified it by saying, look, you know, if we report that he got it through a blood transfusion, this is going to cause all sorts of fear of the blood supply, an irrational fear of the blood supply, when it's extremely rare. People did get AIDS through blood transfusions. Ryan White, obviously the most famous case, the young boy. Um, but it was extremely rare, right? And so, and so to report that without any scrutiny, without also reporting, well, wait, this man was gay. He was having gay sex. And that's really how he contracted it. That would have caused uh, uh, an irrational fear of, of people getting blood transfusions. So that's sort of an interesting kind of media case study. You know, when when is it fair? When is it right to report on someone's homosexuality? And then the other big case is, is and I have a chapter on this, is uh, Terry Dolan, who was the founder of NICPAC, the National Conservative Political Action Committee, which is really one of the first major PACs. It was founded in 1976, the kind of post-Watergate campaign reforms, basically raising lots of outside money. And he was basically the guy who invented the 30-second, or in some cases, 15-second attack ad. And he was a real you know, red meat, right wing activist. Uh, you know, he basically he called George McGovern a baby killer. Uh, that was that he basically kind of you know popularized that term. That's that's sort of new right, hard edged right wing politics that kind of took off in the seventies. Terry Dolan was really one of the leading purveyors of it. He also happened to be a, a closeted gay man who died of AIDS at the age of thirty six, and his brother was the chief speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, Tony Dolan. Um, and that was a huge case when the Washington Post published a story uh, after he died. It was a front page story in the style section. That was really one of the first major mainstream, you know, you could call it outings, but they did a, a, a big expose on his secret gay life and death. And I think for a lot of conservatives, it was sort of a wake up call. It's like, wow, like this guy who was friends with Jerry Falwell, who was our, you know, our most prominent, one of those prominent right-wing political figures in America was gay. I kind of sent the message, wow, like, well, gays are everywhere. You know, this is not just a, they're not just a bunch of left-wing hippies. I mean, they they are found among every every aspect of the population. And so you get the first two out gay members of Congress in the 1980s, both from Massachusetts, one being Barney Frank, who came out weeks after Stuart McKinney's death. And you describe in the book that that was part of what motivated him to come out publicly. The other came out a few years prior to that, Gary Studs, who uh, he the circumstances under which he was outed is that it was revealed that he had had a relationship with a 17-year-old congressional page. Page, yeah. Which is obviously unethical. Yes. Um, and... Remarkable to me that, and, and that's that this is 1983, I believe. Uh, that, 83, yep, yep. Yeah. So, and he just goes and survives that scandal. Yeah. 
and and again, he he, re- he represented like the Cape and Islands and part of the which was a mo- at the time was more conservative and still right. might be today actually more in Massachusetts the more conservative district and it had elected Republicans I believe for fifty years prior to him winning that seat. How was that accepted at that time? How did Gary Studs? How was he able to not just come out, but come out under circumstances in which he had done something that, you know, was fundamentally an abuse of his office and he's able to to just be out? So one of the things I discovered in this book was that actually oftentimes, well, not oftentimes, it would happen rarely, but you would see that there was a disconnect on this issue between the public and perhaps the opinion makers and that the opinion makers would sort of elevate homosexuality to this grave, terrible thing. But then when confronted with these cases of someone being outed in some case, oftentimes the public did not share the kind of hysterical views that might be attributed to them. So I mentioned earlier the case of Walter Jenkins, who was the aide to LBJ. And LBJ was terrified that you know, this would ruin his chances of winning re-election. And you know, he would go on to win the biggest landslide in modern American history against Barry Goldwater, but he was like legitimately afraid. And they would do polling after, and they would say, do you think that Walter Jenkins represented a national security threat, right? Which was the whole rationale for barring people who were gay from working close to the president. And the poll showed a majority didn't think that he represented a national security threat. They might have thought it was a sickness, right? That he needed help, all sorts of other negative views about it. But they didn't necessarily because they could see this man, he'd worked, he'd slaved away as LB, as Lyndon Johnson's closest aide for 25 years. I mean, the guy was loyal to his country, right? So they could see that. Similarly, I think with Gary Studs, this, he was he was an excellent constituent services congressman. You know, he was great on fisheries issues, right? And <laughs> and the, the, the Portuguese fishermen in New Bedford, I mean, they loved him, right? Because he was great on their issues. He did the job well. And I think at the end of the day, um, yes, it was unethical what he did. I mean, I think it's important to also acknowledge this was a consensual relationship, and, and the young man was later interviewed by the committee that was investigating this. He said that, you know, I, I entered into this consensually. He treated me well. Um, I learned from it, perhaps, but whatever. It was wrong. Obviously, it was an abuse of power and wrong. There was a lot of workplace sexual behavior at this time. There was another straight congressman who got in trouble at the same right, time. Right, but that ended his career. That ended his career. And I think, again, well, what's what's the difference here? Dan Crane, who was the congressman who got in trouble for sleeping with- He was with a Republican the, from Illinois. Republican from Illinois and a real Bible-thumping right-winger. And so it's kind of harder to maintain that uh, public image when you're involved in a sex scandal like that. If you're a liberal Democrat from Massachusetts who isn't going around lecturing other people how to live their lives, and you actually have a pretty progressive record on these issues- People don't look at you as a hypocrite. And it's funny because three years before uh, Gary Studs, um, the, fir- the first congressman who was really outed, well, there were two. There was in 1980, there was John Hinson, a Republican from Mississippi. But more high profile was the case of Robert Bauman, a Republican, a very right wing Republican from Maryland, who was arrested for soliciting sex from a 16 year old male prostitute. He was also kind of a hard right. Not so much Christian right, but very, um, he had an anti-gay voting record to the extent that one could have one back then. And he was seen as, a, as being a hypocrite, right? And so I think this issue of hypocrisy is one that people cared about. And similarly, so you talked about Barney Frank. Barney Frank had his own sex scandal, right? Where he had a, a man living in his apartment who was also working as a male prostitute. And uh, Frank was fixing some of his parking tickets, 
this was wrong, right? And he was censured as well, like Gary Studs was. But again, Barney Frank was not going around, you know, preaching uh, morality. And I think a lot of people, a lot of average American people, they can look at that and they can say, you know what? He made a mistake there, but for the grace of God, go I. Um, and I, th- I think they can, de- they at least on this issue, they could detect hypocrisy. And, and that was what perhaps angered them and would lead to different political outcomes with some of these these figures. Similar with Bill Clinton, right? I mean, Bill Clinton was not a, a moralizing scold. And we had all these Republicans at the same time who were brought down in sex scandals while they were simultaneously accusing Bill Clinton of the things that they did themselves. And you could see in the polling numbers, you know, Bill Clinton was, became more popular, or, or at least he was able to maintain his popularity through that because the American people could detect, you know what, he's a bit of a cad, right? He's certainly a tomcatter. But he's not a he's not one of these moralizing hypocrites. Whereas look at, you know, Bob Livingston or Newt Gingrich or, you know, all these guys that Larry Flint exposed, uh, Henry Hyde. Um, and I think that's ultimately that's one of the reasons why the whole impeachment didn't work for the Republicans was because the guys leading it were guilty of the same thing that they were accusing Bill Clinton of. I, I want to uh, close by talking about someone who I think is actually not a figure in your book, but has been talked a lot about lately because of the recent New York Times story about Ed Koch, mm. who was gay. Koch was a congressman, a, a progressive congressman from Manhattan in the 1970s. Uh, he then gets elected mayor of New York in 1977, uh, served three terms, 12 years as mayor, which means he was mayor through the AIDS crisis. And he was more of a a moderate political figure as mayor after having been a more progressive figure in Congress and who never came out in his lifetime. And one of the effects, the the AIDS crisis, it it dragged certain people out of the closet because of the, you know, the, the grave medical and public health risk that, that faced gay men. But you also had men like Ed Koch, mm. who clearly felt the need to shy away from that issue because they were gay and it was going to reinforce the rumors, at least in Ed Koch's case, about that that he was gay. Yeah. And obviously a great deal of, of anger toward Ed Koch for not having devoted more, at least public attention and, and to some extent resources to the AIDS crisis, in the, in the, especially in the early part of the 1980s. It's remarkable to me how Ed Koch never came out of the closet, even when you got to a point in his life where clearly it would have been good PR for him to come out of the closet, you know, in terms of burnishing mm-hmm. his image in, you know, the last decade, decade plus of his life. I think he would have gotten a lot of positive press for that. He obviously had no continuing uh, political expediency where he needed to stay in the closet. Um, but it was just remarkable, the the muscle memory that clearly stuck with that. I mean, I, you know, people have their own psychological issues beyond whatever things they're doing for political purposes. But it was just, I I thought that was such a sad story because it was was clear that he was stunted in this way. And look, Ed Koch grew up at a time, he grew up during the Lavender Scare. He grew up, he came of age in the 40s and the 50s when the homosexual villain, you know, they were, that was the primary villain was the homosexual communist um, who was a threat. And so, yes, the, the anger towards Ed Koch at the time, I think is justified. Uh, and I think it's justified for us to perhaps be angry with him now that that he didn't do enough as we would have liked. But really, I think the ultimate villain is the closet. And it's this society that, you know, basically straight people created this. They were the ones responsible for the closet. You know, it was their homophobia and their neuroses about gay people that created this phenomenon that drove people like Ed Koch, who was a liberal from Greenwich Village. Okay. Who had all of the like progressive 
Absolutely. For progressive positions on gay rights. I mean, by the 1970s, this was not something where it was the same across the spectrum. Sure. But you know what? There weren't a lot of openly gay politicians in the 80s, even in New York City. You know, I, 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 I think we have to be fair to him. I mean, we can criticize him for not doing enough. Absolutely. And perhaps if he had been a straight liberal who didn't feel this sort of that he needed to overcompensate because he was in the closet, maybe a straight liberal would have done more. But you know what? There are lots of straight liberals running cities in America who also got criticized for not doing enough on AIDS. So I just think we have to put these things in context and, and really understand that we have to have a kind of societal understanding of where a person like Ed Koch came from, that he felt the need uh, to be closeted because he was not the only person. I mean, the vast majority of people in his position were were closeted. Uh, people at that level of politics, it was nary heard of that someone would be openly gay and be a mayor of a major American city. I'm trying to think who the first openly gay mayor of, of an American city was. Probably didn't come around until the early 2000s. I mean, I, don't I think know. it was Anise Parker. Anise Parker. I mean, I guess in, it, in it Houston, depends in Houston. Right? I mean, it de it depends on you know what you're deeming a large city. Sure. Right? And that and was that that was not that long ago. 10, 15 years ago, right? So I think yeah. I think we need to kind of keep these things. Uh, in context, and you know, reading Secret City will help you with that context. <laughs> uh, let's leave it there. James Kerchick is a journalist, a columnist at Tablet, a fellow at the Atlanta Council, and as we've discussed, his newest book is Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. Thank you, Jamie, for a really interesting conversation, and congratulations again. Thanks a lot. If you'd like to be the first to know about our upcoming podcast topics and to suggest questions for my guests, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious Newsletter. It's at joshbarrow.com. Subscribers get four issues a week from me and special access to our thoughtful, very serious community. If you are enjoying this podcast, I would really encourage you to consider becoming a paid subscriber to the Very Serious Podcast newsletter. We are not currently taking advertising in this podcast. The way in which this project is financially supported is through our paying subscribers, to whom we're very grateful, who get not only this podcast every week, but four weekly issues of the newsletter. You get every Wednesday, I answer your mail in the Mayonnaise Clinic column. Uh, I write a variety of newsletter issues on economics, politics, uh, grilling, and other cooking topics. Uh, and so, if you, first of all, if you're if you're only getting the podcast, I encourage you go to joshbarrow.com and subscribe even for free to the newsletter. Um, and you will get a selection of the newsletter offerings. Um, but really, it's, uh, it's wide ranging. I enjoy it. I think it's very interesting. I hope you'll think it's very interesting. I really encourage you to check it out. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and by Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek makes this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week. <laughs>